Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later on the program, Georgia reached more than 100,000 COVID-19 cases this week. What does it mean going forward? I mean, I think we need to decrease the number of transmissions. And if we do, we can actually turn things around. And the most important thing that I say, I will follow Dr. Fauci by saying, and if you really want the schools to open in the fall, we better do that. Right now, there's too much virus in the community to open schools. We have to bring the community level of virus down. Emory University infectious disease expert Dr. Carlos Del Rio joins me. In related news, more than 2,800 new COVID-19 cases were reported yesterday alone in the state. Also, Georgia Emergency Management Officials, or GEMA, say the majority of Georgia's critical care beds are now occupied, and hospital leaders statewide say they're nearing capacity. Emory Healthcare reports COVID-19 hospitalizations have more than tripled in the past 14 days. So here are more numbers. As of today, the Georgia Department of Public Health reports there are 106,727 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide reported to be 2,930, and 12,606 people are hospitalized. Of that number, more than 2,500 are ICU admissions. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Health. And as we know, the pandemic has led to so many Georgians seeking unemployment benefits. The Georgia Department of Labor released some new data yesterday. The department says it paid out a record amount of money to unemployed Georgians during the 4th of July holiday week. Those payments totaled nearly $857 million. More than 60 percent of that was federal dollars. State labor officials also project payments for this week could even be higher, and the number of Georgians getting unemployment benefits could now be close to $1 million. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Five months ago, almost to this date, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, professor of medicine and global health at Emory University, joined this program to talk about the complexity of this new strain of the coronavirus. Now, back then, the virus had not been declared a pandemic, but a global health concern. And Dr. Carlos Del Rio was the first health expert we spoke with on this program about the virus. I think the biggest question is, is it gonna come here? Is it gonna come here? And you know, if I knew the answer to that question, mm-hmm. I would, I would uh, you know, be playing in Vegas. But what can I, I can say in the US, we've had 12 patients so far. 
there has not been transmission from those patients to other people in the United States. I think CDC and the authorities are doing a lot. But the most important thing is we need public health preparedness. Public health preparedness, in my mind, is like preparing for fires. I hope I don't have a fire in my house, but I have a fire alarm and we have extinguishers, and if they have a fire department. So if there's a fire, we can respond. That's what public health response should be. Wow. As they say, that was then, this is now. Let's welcome back to the program Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. It's always fun to be with you, but God. We're wow. three million cases later, right? <laughs> you know, it's like you're looking at my script. That was my intro next. Let's begin here. We're three million cases later and more than 500 deaths worldwide. And here in the U.S., we're just under 150,000 deaths. Dr. Del Rio, how did the U.S. get to these numbers? Well, that's 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 a really important question. And I think when this is all said and done, I think we're going to have to have a very detailed analysis of what happened. I think we we know several things. I think we know that we grossly underestimated the power of this virus. And when I say we, I mean everybody. Uh, everybody globally has underestimated how how complex and powerful this virus is. Um, trying to stop it has been incredibly difficult. It is transmitted uh, quite effic- effectively. And I think what makes it very hard to control is that there's a lot of people who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic who transmit the virus. So I can be sitting with you uh, feeling perfectly well. I'm not wearing my mask because I'm feeling fine. You're not wearing your mask because you're feeling fine. And yet we, I could be transmitting the virus to you. And then, and the, 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 the exponential growth is really something that people still don't understand very well. But you know, one infected person at the end of five days leads to about two and a half to three infections. And at the end of 30 days, that leads to 406 infections. So that exponential growth, that matter in which this transmission increases over time is the reason why we've gone so quickly from 12 cases back in February to 3 million cases today. We as a country responded quite well initially. I think the it took us some time, but the shelter in place was well executed. There were there were some errors. Uh, you know, the 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 CDC flop, the uh, the the testing at the beginning, but but we we caught up. We're doing 40. We have done over 40 million tests right now. Mm-hmm. We're doing about you know about 650,000 death tests per day. So we're we're doing the right thing in testing. We could be doing more, but we're doing the right thing. I think our biggest mistake was, I would say, if I was going to look at two things, is number one. We really never had a national strategy. Mm-hmm. And number two, you know, it's very hard to think about a, a, an orchestra. I, I, I'm in the board of the symphony. And, you know, if every state is a music player, if everybody plays their own thing and you don't have a conductor leading, you don't have beautiful music. You will have a lot of cacophony. But you, but you need a conductor that brings everybody to play the right way. And then you have beautiful music. We just have not had a conductor. Who should have been the country. conductor? Well, you know, obviously the, the president needs to be the conductor, but if the president doesn't need to do or want to do it, then he delegated to the vice president and or delegated to Dr. Burks. But I think the president was giving messages all along that were even contradicting his own task force. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't alignment in the message. There was no enforcement of the message. There was no telling states, look, you got to do this. I mean, this is not an option. You really need to do this in order to help us get out of this crisis. I said over and over to have some states locked down and others don't 
it's a little bit like having a you know a peeing section in the swimming pool. You can't have it that way. You, you need to do it for the entire country. Everybody needs to work together. So we don't have a national strategy. We didn't work together. And then we made the other mistake, as many states, once we started seeing the cases come down, and we did. We were able to, the lockdowns worked. People stayed home. We decreased transmission. But then many states, including ours, opened too soon. But more importantly, opened without, without restrictions. We opened saying, we're done. We don't need to worry about it. You know, no longer do we need a mask. We don't need social distancing. And most people stayed home for a while. Mm -hmm. They really didn't go out. But I think the turning point for the nation was Memorial Day. I think by Memorial Day, everybody said, okay, we've had it. You know, we're going out. Looks beautiful out there. There's no coronavirus. And then transmission started. Mm -hmm. And as I said, a month later, those few cases at the beginning, a month later, are hundreds of cases, thousands of cases. So we, we, we made a lot of mistakes, Rose, and, uh, but we're still in a position that we can correct. And I'm hoping that we can correct even this late. Early on in that conversation, too, you talked about the many types of coronaviruses, but the focus was on a particular strain. Now, to your knowledge, because there's so much out there, has that changed? Is there more than one strain of the coronavirus people are contracting? There appears to be a strain that came from China and a strain that came from Europe. Most of the cases in the U.S. are actually from the European strain. So the, this, this virus has mutated and diverged. And there is some, some evidence that maybe some of the viruses in circulation now have a, have a more robust spike protein, so more likely to attach to humans. Mm. But, but in general, the, the virus hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. They, neither has the human behavior, and that's been the problem. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, also earlier on, it was older people, those with compromised immune systems or other conditions. Now people are dying without any pre-existing conditions. And now this, I just read an article last night pinned under this title, young people getting coronavirus in Florida equals old people getting coronavirus in Florida. What do you make of this dramatic shift to this younger population now contracting this disease? Well, I think the first wave of this virus, as you say, was primarily impacting older people in nursing homes and in long-term care facilities and other places like that, but and caused a lot of mortality. Uh, what we're seeing today is about a, a decade and a half difference in the median age of those impacted. Mm-hmm. You know, back then was in the 60s was the median age. Right now, the median age is about 45, 48. Uh, so younger people are getting infected. Uh, I think the challenge is that younger people don't get as sick, but they can take the disease to others older who then will get very sick. And that's a challenge. And I think I also want to emphasize just because you're young doesn't mean you don't get sick. Mm-hmm. Young people, while a great majority of them develop very mild symptoms, some can get very sick and some can die. So it, it needs to be taken seriously. And the the overall, you know, the the overall impact is is really depends on who that individual is you know the age the underlying conditions mm-hmm. obesity hypertension uh, diabetes really increase the risk of an individual so if you're 29 years old but you're obese and hypertensive you're more like a 70 year old when it comes to confronting this virus something else dr dario i want to get your thoughts on because we hear a lot about doing temperature screenings at the door is that still an effective indicator of this virus especially if someone is already in an incubation state is it you know rose i don't think it it does much to to tell you the truth i think that but it sends a message that we're doing something and i think sends the message 
that reminds us that this virus is still out there. So it's almost like a stop sign. It almost is something to remind us, slow down. Uh, I think it's a good way to also enforce and, and other things. So buildings that have temperature screens are also saying you need a pass to get in. And I think having people stop for the temperature screen is a good time to tell the individual you need to have a mask on. And yes, occasionally you'll pick somebody up with a fever. We, we have picked people up that way. It's not many, but the more important thing is, is, the, is the required masking inside buildings. I think that will make the big difference. But again, it's, it's more to remind us that there's still something happening. And what about people say it's not a big deal now? I don't know. I'll get your, your, your opinion. The medical world, look, has discovered a lot about this disease, but there's still a mystery as to the exact original source of the coronavirus and how exactly it was first transmitted to, to humans from a very notable and prominent organization that right now the focus should be on a, on a vaccine and basically said, quit worrying about where the original source was at this point. And I would agree with that. I think we know where the original source pretty much was. It probably was a virus that came from bats that probably passed through an intermediate animal, probably a pangolin to humans. But once, you know, for for a pandemic to occur, you need three things. You need the emergence of a new virus, Mm -hmm. which we had here. You need a virus to which there's, there's, there's little immune human immunity. Uh, for example, when we had the 2009 pandemic, there was some degree of immunity in the population. So that's why the pandemic eventually went away. There was some degree of immunity in the population. And number three, you need sustained human-to-human transmission. And right now, what we have is sustained human-to-human transmission. So right now, what we have is all those things together. And and what we need to focus on right now is, is mitigation. And mitigation means decreasing transmission and preparing to take care of the sick. And we've gotten much better now mm-hmm. compared to March in taking care of the sick. We got some medications that, are, that have an impact. We have learned more about how to do mechanical ventilation, how to better manage the patients with anticoagulation. So in fact, our hospital mortality has gone down, mm-hmm. but the number of patients in the hospitals has really gone up. This morning, there's an article in the AJC that's saying that, you know, State hospitalizations are at an all-time high. I can tell you, we are running out of beds in the hospitals. And this has implications not only for COVID, mm-hmm. but it has implications for other diseases. Mm-hmm. If you have a heart attack, if you have a stroke, if you need a surgery, there won't be a bed for you. And that, to me, is the other impact, right? Saturating the healthcare system has implications for everybody, not just for COVID. We could spend another hour or hours talking about this pandemic and how it has exposed our nation's approach to public health policy. You opened up talking about that as we bring this close to home. And it's estimated that these cases, these COVID-19 cases here in Georgia, are up 245 percent since late April. And Dr. Del Rio, I'm going to ask you, uh, through your lens, has the state public health officials and Governor Kemp failed the citizens of Georgia by easing the restrictions and opening the state up for business? too soon well you know i mean i think i think it was a, it was a decision that the governor had to take and you know that's why he is the governor i think that uh, the economic strain the economic pain that the state was under the unemployment the number of businesses that were going under was a concern to him and opening up the economy was important i'm not going to argue that it wasn't but we need to remember that it's not public health versus economy it has to be we need healthy people in order to have an economy. And I think what we did is we opened the economy, but we didn't say, and you also need to do the following things. We also need to wear a mask, continue social distancing, 
you know, wash your hands because the virus is still there. The virus is still there. And then we need to decide what things you can open and what things you cannot open. You know, if you read the White House document, the guidance that the White House made, it was very clear what you needed to do in order to open. And even the president told Governor Kemp, you open too soon. So I think the answer is yes, I think we open too soon, but but we also open without the necessary precautions. And that to me is, is, is more of a concern. Another public health expert we all been seeing and listening to, your counterpart in your field, so to speak, Dr. Anthony Fauci, just within the last 24 hours, he says states with this coronavirus spike should seriously look at shutting down. But he also adds it's not too late to turn things around. How much truth is in that statement? I think, I think there's a lot of truth. I think we can actually turn things around, but it requires that we all do the right thing, that we all take this seriously, that we all say, look, we have to mask all the time. We have to stay home if we're, if we're ill. And we really need to think about not going to, you know, just because they're open doesn't mean I need to go to a bar. Just because they're open doesn't need to need, I need to go to a church or to an nightclub. I think we need to avoid places where there's going to be a lot of people. I would avoid any place where there's more than 10 individuals. And I would I would avoid crowding. I mean, I think we, we need to, to decrease the number of transmissions. And if we do, we can actually turn things around. And the most important thing that I say, I will follow Dr. Fauci by saying, and if you really want the schools to open in the fall, we better do that. Right now, there's too much virus in the community to open schools. We have to bring the community level of virus down. But if folks can't adhere to experts like yourself and Dr. Fauci, then one could argue and say, well, look, then we need our political leaders who have the will and the power to maybe implement measures so people will stay home. I would agree. And I would agree with that. I mean, I think that I appreciate that the mayor went ahead and, and mandated masks in the city. And, you know, I was hearing this morning in the radio, you know, the governor's office saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter because you can't enforce it. Well, you know, but you can still mandate it and you can still have sort of a sense, you know, I mean, we mandate a speed limit, not everybody respected, but there's mandates, we mandate seat belts. Okay, not everybody respected. Uh, and I could probably, I could have driven today from home to, to the hospital without my seatbelt and maybe not got stopped, but I could have also had an accident. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to create uh, a mandate helps. It's a little bit like the temperature screen. It helps create that sense of, oh, I better respect this. There may be something may happen. I need to see more signs around the city saying mask are mandatory. We need businesses. We need employers. We need people to put masks saying, if you don't have a mask, you don't get in here. I think we really need individuals to enforce it in their businesses in their communities, in their in their uh, in their lives, you know, I, I have told people to wear a mask, and I'm going to do it uh, uh, politely, but I'm going to do it forcefully mm -hmm. because I wear a mask to protect you, and you must wear a mask to protect me. This is also about caring. This is also about compassion. This is also about being a, a good citizen. And you know, we 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 should be a community. We have to be a community. So yes, we we need mandates. Yes, we need better leadership. But we also, as a community, should be able to respond in a better way. We need community leaders, Rose. We, we need, you know, sports leaders. We need, I need, you know, the, the coach of the, of, you know, of the Bulldogs football team saying, you want to see football in the fall? Wear your mask now. Mm -hmm. We need church leaders to be saying this. We need everybody to be saying this. It's not just a matter of putting mandates. It's a matter of really 
creating community consciousness about how important this is, because the reality is we have too much virus in the community right now. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, professor of medicine and global health at Emory University. As always, Dr. Del Rio, I appreciate you taking the time. I really do. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rose. Always nice to be with you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We love... Good stories with a great ending, with a surprise ending, and you're about to hear one. Project You First is an Atlanta-based nonprofit. Their mission seems pretty simple. They help homeless individuals and families that are in need, and especially in need of hygiene products. And for almost six years to date, Project You First has been able to assemble and distribute these hygiene kits, but they are known as love bags to people in need. And then recently, the founder and CEO, Erica Wright, found herself on the receiving end of help. And she joins me now as we tell their story. Erica, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Let's begin with the beginning. How did Project You First get started? Well, um, it truly was a vision from God. About six years ago, um, I went to sleep in my brokenness. When I say that, um, suffering from depression, anxiety, Um, bipolar disorder, had just gotten out of a verbally abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I realized that until after I got out of it. But um, that night, that morning, 3.30 in the morning, God woke me up and I started writing like Paul. I didn't know what it was. It was just like parables of you first, highways, byways, giving. And so I had an opportunity at the church that I was going to at the time to share what I thought my purpose was. And Mm -hmm. so that morning I reflected back on a young lady that I saw under the bridge some years ago who was washing her hair. And I thought to myself, how do the homeless get the simple necessities of life? And so I realized at that moment, that was my purpose and I just spoke it. And lo and behold, the next Sunday, two ladies that I didn't even know started to bring hygiene items to me. And I put them in the shoe box, like um, United Way. Mm -hmm. And I put them in the clothing closet, but they didn't move. And so I said, okay. So I put them in a, a Ziploc bag. And the first person I saw on the street I got out of my car and I gave him a bag and my life changed from there um, because it was the story that he told. Mm -hmm. And so myself, um, as a person who has always done well in life, um, would sometimes drive around and say, you know, he's able-bodied. Why is he not working? You know, and then it fell on my doorstep. So uh, and that's how we really started. And I got a group of friends together and we started going down to what used to be known as Cortland and Pine, where mm-hmm. the homeless shelter was. Mm-hmm. And we would serve, you know, um, set up our tables, give them sack lunches, clothing, and then it just expanded from there. Um, using social media was, was our platform um, because I had gone through so much. I had lost my insurance, health insurance. I wasn't able to get my medicine. I lost my job all while doing the work. And, of course, then I was on the receiving end of getting help. 
But at that moment, it taught me how to be humble and to treat people with respect and dignity um, to get back into society. And that's pretty much how we got started. And Project You First, that name, yes. did it just come to you? Did you get waking up again at like 3.30 well, in the morning? <laughs> well, the name You First was has always stuck. It was a part of the parable. Mm-hmm. Um, Project You First came about because, you know, when you're starting something and you really don't know what you're doing, you know, I often say I started with no money, no credit and no blueprint. And so um, what happened when I tried to find the domain, it wasn't available. And so people just started saying Project You First. So we are legally known as You First, mm-hmm. but um, known as Project You First. And that's how it just kind of went viral from there. <laughs> and now nearly six years later, how many people help in the organization? Because you rely on a lot of volunteers, correct? All volunteer based. Um, we do not, you know, have any we don't take we don't have we haven't received any grant funding um and so it's about 12 i call it my 12 maybe my disciples <laughs> and um and um, they have just been amazing um one of the young ladies who started with me who gave me the product she said she has been with me from day one and so um that i i rely on them pretty much for everything i can call and say hey guys let's do this they pretty much think I'm crazy um, because I'm really a visionary. So when God gives me something, I just go with it. I don't worry about the money. I don't worry about how we're going to, you know, put it together. And it always just, it just flows. And so, yes, it's about 12, but we can sometimes have up to 60 volunteer depending on what type of um, event we have, especially mm-hmm. if we can work with corporate sponsorships, then we can um, also have, you know, anywhere from 12 to 60 people at one time. Erica, do you see some of the same people from six years ago that are still homeless? Yes. Um, Yes. And I understand, um, especially as a person who has walked that uh, avenue. um, It wasn't easy for me. Um, There are a couple of people that we serve weekly. um, And it could be something as simple as mental illness, uh, where they're not able to get the proper help that they need. And it's not that it's not available. They may not know how to do it or Mm -hmm. they may not be open to do it. Um, And so, yes, I've seen people who have been on the street for six years or more. Uh, We've traveled, not just here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. We uh, did a drive from Atlanta to California about two years ago. um, And that was something that God put on my heart to do. And what it did, it gave me an opportunity to see what homelessness really looks like. You know, there's no face with it. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's not about your color. It's not about um, your sexual orientation. It's just about your experience at that moment. And so, what we noticed was, of course, in the warmer climates, we saw more people um, living outside as opposed to when we did the drive from Atlanta to New York, mm-hmm. where more people were in shelters. And so, um, there were different um, shelters that we had an opportunity to visit that I thought were very interesting. And so, for one they may have a, I don't want to say compound, but a facility that will house like a man, a, a, a man who's raising their child, you know, in experience of homelessness mm-hmm. or uh, women and children or someone with HIV or whatever your it was, there was a place for you in that sector. So in witnessing some of those things, uh, my hopes was to come back to the city of Atlanta and be able to sit down at the table and say, hey, this is what we've seen here. We've seen it work. Um, maybe we can implement some of those things for for those people that live on our streets. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Erica Wright. She's the founder and CEO of You First, sometimes called Project You First. And we're talking about how her organization is helping Atlanta's homeless population. Now, Erica, 
How has the pandemic affected your work and your ability to do what you all have been doing all these years? Well, I just knew we were going to go under, just to be honest, because we uh, definitely rely on um, people to donate, do- private donors. Um, and so once we, it started, I, um, we emptied out our sh- uh, storage. We don't have a facility. I'm praying that that's next. Um, so we have a 10 by 10 storage on U-Haul, and it was packed with all kind of hygiene items, socks. And so I just made a decision to give it all away. And so we uh, called the city of Atlanta Recreation Center where I knew that the children of Atlanta were coming to get food. And so I wanted them to have the hygiene items and as well as the local shelters, we distribute those items as well. And we locked it up. But guess what? We got more donations in. So you thought um, the organization you were going to have to shut down permanently. That's what you shut down permanently. Yes. Yes. And so more donations start coming in. And so what I did, I wanted to keep myself safe because I just had gotten out of the hospital uh, with some heart issues in January. And so, and then of course not having a facility, I wanted to keep the volunteers safe as well. So what I decided to do was to have Amazon sent everything directly to my apartment. And as I watch TV, I have inserted up to about 16,000 hygiene kits myself since the pandemic has started. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so during the week, I would go out to the local shelters to drop off boxes and my Honda Civic, and I would have to make multiple trips. And then we started to give out soap and other items in our love bags to people on the streets to make sure that they're washing their hands. Mm -hmm. And um, we kept being asked, do you have anything to eat? Uh, Mm -hmm. We're hungry, do you have water? And so we started counting in the kitchen. So I just went back to the kitchen, making my famous bologna sandwiches. And um, so once a week, every Sunday morning, we're out doing uh, we started at about last week, we did about 400 mm-hmm. um, sack lunches. And so we're growing. And so because of the pandemic, we know that there is a need and we're just trying to uh, meet that immediate need right now. Now, Erica, let's talk about this Honda Civic. <laughs> <laughs> this Honda Civic, uh, how old was Honda Civic? And was 12 the, years old. <laughs> and so did the Honda Civic have a name like, you know, Harold or something like that? Well, it's it was Edith. Um, Edith. It was named after my Edith. It was named after my grandmother, and um, and you love Edith. Say, I love Edith. She would always say, "Baby, just keep going." And so um, <laughs> she, Edith would just keep going, and um, so yeah, we were blessed to uh, receive the band, um, and you know, fortunate enough to be seen on um, WSB TV. Well, yeah, let's uh, back up a little bit. Let's just go. Okay. So. Edith had put in all her time. Edith had put her time in. Edith was running decently, uh, but I do know that the transmission was about to go. Okay. And the air had recently went out. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It's, it's getting ready to get hot. So she was definitely on her last leg. <laughs> oh, Edith, I'm going on a automotive glory. <laughs> so then you, you do an interview with the local television station. And then tell our listeners what happened after that. Well, after that, we had a phone call. So I was sitting watching the segment in excitement of, of seeing myself on television. And um, I had one phone call after that. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe this may be too much. Maybe I should just let things go to voicemail. And then my spirit was like, no, you just need to answer the phone. So the next call, it was a, a, a deep voice. And I recognized it, but I wasn't sure and um, he said, um, Erica, I said, yes. He said, this is Tyler Perry. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I said, no way. And so um, it was him. 
And um, he said, I saw you on the uh, local station and I saw your work and um, and, I, and I cried. I just bust out crying. <laughs> and he said, what are you crying for? You don't even know why I'm calling. And I was at that point, like, it didn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's Tyler Perry. <laughs> voice. Yeah, it's Tyler Perry. And so um, he um, just asked me, you know, how, how did we get started? And, and we talked about that a little bit. And then he asked me what kind of band I needed. And that right there to me was everything because it wasn't just that, you know, someone called and said, hey, come and get a band. But he really took the time to listen to my story and to um, ask me what I wanted. And he even he even said, um, you want one with the windows or without the windows? <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought that was special. He is truly an amazing angel uh, walking this earth uh, to continue to give back to the community. And and what was so funny about the story is um, I used to work at the Greenbrier Barbershop. And I remember when he would come in and get his hair cut way before anyone knew, you know, Tyler Perry, he would give us tickets to his show. And so it's just amazing how God brought. Did you him tell him that? Circle. Yes, I did. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so that was amazing. He would he would come in, he would get his hair cut, and um, I don't know if he was homeless at that at that particular time, but you know it made me think about you know wow, look at how God, you know, transitioned his life, and even for me, mm -hmm. um, to go through through my my walk, you know, I, I tr truly know where I'm sitting is 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 all God. Now the van that Tyler Perry gifted to you all is it going to be Edith Point Two or? The Tyler Mobile. Uh, no, I'm, I'm still working on it. Well, we know we're going to call it the Love Band. There you go. That's what we know we're going to call it. But we're going to put TP in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely going to put TP in there somewhere. <laughs> um, Erica, when you think about what you just said a moment ago, you thought you first was in danger of closing, and you think where you are now, and you're gifted with this van from Tyler Perry. What goes through your mind? Well, I have a testimony from about two years ago when things were really rough with you first. And I say rough, I mean, we weren't getting the donations in and I really was thinking about quitting. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And, and at that moment they were about to repossess Edith. And so um, I remember seeing this homeless lady and I had some luggage in my car that someone had given me. And I said, you know what, I'm going to give this luggage and I am done. I'm, I'm just going to go my way. And, um, and before I could do that, um, I got to the lady, I got out of the car and I went to the back of the car and she came and she was kind of talking out of her head a little bit. And, um, and before I could open the trunk, she looked at me and she said, I knew you were coming. She said, I knew, you know, someone stole my luggage and I hadn't even opened the, the trunk. And so I, I started to weep. And as I got in the car, I only had like a $20 seed and the spirit was like planted with her. And I gave it to her and she started just kind of mumbling. And she looked at me and she said, when you get your 501c3, God is going to open up doors and windows you've never seen before. And she just went back to kind of talking out of her head. And I knew that the spirit was talking to me and I cried and I said, God, I would never quit on you again. So even when I said closing up the storage, it wasn't forever. It was just because I didn't know where mm -hmm. we would be during this pandemic. Um, but I I know now that um, our our resources are needed. And so um, I'm fighting every day. I mean, I do a lot of work myself. I don't mind doing it. Um, it keeps uh, me safe. It keeps the people that we serve safe and the volunteers. 
And so I'm just hopeful that, you know, with this uh, platform now that has been given, um, that people will see our story because we didn't just start. You know, we have been mm-hmm. doing work for a long time with very little resource. And so I am just grateful to be able to just continue to to navigate because one of the things that we noticed um, since we've been out during the pandemic, um, I know that the city of Atlanta is doing their part, but when you have so many people that are homeless now or um, the working poor, because we've had people to get in our line who have on a uniform from Walmart mm-hmm. or uh, a Waffle House. And so they're looking for food and water. And so I just couldn't imagine just sheltering in place, knowing that there's something that, that we can do. So I'm just hitting the pavement every day, trying to to gather the funds and hopefully that um, maybe we can get some corporate sponsors or just some in-kind donations of some of the things that we're supporting people with. And you have had some pretty big names you've partnered with. I think Delta Airlines is one of them. Yes. Um, yes. So even with that, some of the larger um, corporate um, sponsorships that we've been able to receive, you know, they're on that end of right now, things are tight. Yeah. Uh, we used to receive like, you know, pallets of water, um, chips or things like potato chips or things like that that were almost about to be expired. We would get like just just amount, you know, a large amount of items that we could just use. And so right now those funds, I, I'm assuming, are dried up for them. So it's dried up for us. Mm-hmm. So pretty much everything we've been doing since the pandemic has just been through people donating from social media or just seeing the, the episodes from Channel 2 and um, things of that nature. Erica Wright, the founder and CEO of Project You First. Thank you for taking the time, Erica. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you're doing for Atlanta's unsheltered community. All right. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Peace and blessings. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Remember when 2018 was called the Year of the Woman? Well, it was a record-breaking number of female candidates that ran for office and won. Many of them women of color and LGBT candidates. And this year, according to the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, even more women are running in 2020. That includes also a new surge of Republican women candidates. Now, in the midst of all this, there's a new four-part book series that tells the story of four women in Congress. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and Elizabeth Warren. The book series is called, and I love this, Queens of the Resistance. So joining me now to talk more about this are the co-authors, Brenda Jones and Krishan Trotman. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose, for having us here. We, we are grateful that you got the books and enjoy them. Let's talk about backstories, because backstories and origin stories are great. How did the idea for this book series come about? Who wants to take that? Yeah, well, Brenda and I worked together on um, John Lewis's book, Across That Bridge. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we really enjoyed working together on that book. It's a wonderful book that we published at Hachette. And Brenda and I developed a great relationship. And, you know, a lot of things have transpired since the Trump administration started. And we wanted to do something Um, as writers and editors um, to communicate our thoughts, which was that female leadership is sort of key to uh, the future and we wanted to empower women. Um, And as people in publishing, um, Brenda is a writer and I've been an editor, but this is our first book um, Mm -hmm. that we're doing on our own. 
we knew that in publishing, we wanted to make sort of a statement by publishing four books at once to show how important it is to uh, tell women's stories, Mm -hmm. uh, especially powerful women like this. And so that's where it all started. Kashawn, let me stay with you for a moment because you're the executive editor at Hatchet Books. You know how long it can take from concept to the actual publishing date. So was time of the essence to get this four book series out? Because it wasn't just one book, it was four. Yeah, actually, it was Brenda's idea on the timing. And I thought it was, we all really liked it, the publisher and I, um, uh, to publish in time for the the Democratic National Convention. And um, that's what we were working towards. So we had to move pretty quickly. But I think we did an excellent job. The book also includes illustrations. Mm-hmm. Our illustrator is Jonelle Joshua. And um, we had to do the research. We had to do the storytelling and do the illustrations. And we pulled it all together within a few months. And Brenda Jones, as mentioned, you're a longtime communications director for John Lewis. You know, you've helped a lot with statements, opinions, speeches. Now, co-writing a book series quite different. But what was the experience like for you? Well, let me say this. Of course, the first book I wrote was with John Lewis himself, which mm-hmm. was a great honor um, across that bridge. And of course, as Grishan mentioned, that's how we met. Um, so collaboration is something I'm familiar with, especially as a communications director for a member of Congress. Um I think collaboration in any creative process is complex. It's not easy to do. There are a lot of stresses involved in getting something creative like this out as quickly as we did. So I think it was challenging. I think it was rewarding. And um, as Lillian Hellman, another great author, Mm -hmm. used, used to say, I don't always like writing, but I love having written. <laughs> ah. So let me ask y'all this. Why these four particular women? Mm. Well, firstly, let me say this. We started out with Maxine Waters. Do you, mm-hmm. do we want to tell that story, Krishan? That we started out um, being interested in writing something about Maxine Waters And then um, we got the opportunity to expand this and make it a series Mm. of four extremely powerful women in Congress. And so we took it, we made it a series, Queens of the Resistance of four power brokers on Capitol Hill who, From my perspective as a woman in politics, uh, what I see is that women can be vilified. Women are um, demonized. Uh, We saw the campaign of Hillary Clinton and the way that I know people don't always, you know, have their various opinions about the Clintons, Mm -hmm. but um, regardless of criticism, somehow the, the, depiction of women in politics becomes outsized, even monstrous. They become, you know, they're vilified, demonized, like they are some sort of horrible, uh, you know, monster from the pit, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think we felt that it was important to recognize the value and contribution that these women bring. 
you don't have to agree with them and their politics to recognize that they make great sacrifices to try and do what they believe is right in this country. And I think we felt like they should be celebrated. Why, why are we vilifying them? We can disagree mm -hmm. without um, vilification. So we wanted to celebrate who they are without reserve, without, uh, we've heard all the bad news. Mm -hmm. We wanted yeah. to offer some of the <laughs> good news. To, you know, one of the things that really inspired me by knowing Brenda was she was a friend that I had um, who I could talk to about politics and it wasn't all doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being outside of the actual, you know, outside of the work when you're not, you know, at least you're working in the house like Brenda, I think to the public, it could be very, politics can be very, you know, draining and dark. And I would talk to Brenda and get her input on things and I would just feel empowered and enlightened. And I think that we need to have more conversations where we're talking about change makers and leadership that can be done and, you know, really, you know, getting people charged up to participate in politics. Um, activism is great, but also we have to rework our systems from the inside. Um, so I just thought that, you know, I wanted to give books that was sort of like the conversations that Brenda and I have mm -hmm. uplifting and inspiring uh, and educational. Now, did mm -hmm. any of them desire to read their respective book before it was published? Well, you know, similar to other forms of writing and journalism, we didn't ask their permission to write it. They're mm -hmm. public figures. And we did contact them before we started writing. It just so happened that the period we were working in was the time of the impeachment. Mm. And even though we had, I think they had interest in meeting with us, of course, this kind of project pales in, in importance to the impeachment of the president. So I know this, I can say there is great enthusiasm in the speaker's office. Is there a story or an observation that was illuminating about any of these Congresswomen that struck either of you that you want to share? One story that I can mention is related to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was fascinating to me to read about the Puerto Rican and African American activism that actually has a deep and long history in New York City. So we might think to ourselves, it's incidental that she came from Brooklyn or from New York, but actually during the time of slavery in Puerto Rico, there were activists who were fighting against slavery in Puerto Rico. Uh, the Spanish were the colonizers there. And sometimes they would be exiled or determined to leave the island mm. and they would come to New York City as a place where they would sort of collect their energy. Mm. So there is a deep and long history of political activism among Puerto Ricans in New York. And of course, when the great migration of Puerto Ricans came to New York City, they went to what is called Spanish Harlem mm -hmm. or right next door to Harlem. So when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's dad was growing up in New York City, 
he was activated by Malcolm X, who was, you know, uh, evangelizing, if you will, about his politics on the streets of New York City. And so it was very, very interesting to see that relationship between Puerto Rican and African-American politics, even in her own campaign, Mm -hmm. she utilized um, the strategies of African-American campaign uh, executives who had been in the business for a very long time in order to empower her and enable her to win. So that I thought was very interesting to find how deeply engaged the two communities are together and how much their political strategy synchronizes with each other. I don't know if that's as true today as it was, Mm -hmm. but it was powerful to learn. What about you, Krishan? I'm a single mother and um, I was really empowered by Maxine Waters. Um, Maxine Waters was married and she had two kids. I like her story because you actually see her rise really um, in the book that sort of I could see myself or even my mom in her story, working at the telephone company, then going on to work at the Head Start. And the Head Start program was started to get um, African-American children a better education and better start because they weren't born with the privilege of some of the, of, of, of some white students. So Maxine Waters was working at, um, as sort of an assistant or program coordinator at the Head Start. And that's where she really started um, getting extremely involved in community and working with the moms, um, providing, you know, different programs to help support the, the other mothers in terms of getting their kids even to the Head Start because they didn't have help or they were busy with their jobs. So Maxine Waters sort of became that person. And then I think she just was someone that they saw as a leader. And from there, she developed relationships with women like Gloria Steinem and, um, you know, the Miss Foundation, and again, was identified sort of like Shirley Chisholm as a leader. And these women, through all of this community building, pushed Maxine Waters towards city council. And that's where like her career began. We talk a lot about Auntie Maxine in terms of how she, who she is now and how strong she is. But I think we don't talk enough about, you know, her roots in feminism and how passionate she is about women's rights and has remain consistent as not only a black leader, but also a a leader of women and and the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. And she was someone who understood the difference between a black feminist and a white feminist and all the things that, all the differences that we may have. She knew how to work within those differences, but to allow us to be united in her campaigns and the work that all the women contributed to her career. So let me ask you this. Is this Queens of the Resistance series a one and done? Are there more? Have you heard from people say, what about my story? Well, I mean, it just launched on Mm -hmm. June 30th. So we do hope that in the future there may be other queens that they may add to the series. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We love that. I mean... We need this series to sell, and then everyone can reach out to our publishers at Plume and say, we want more. (laughs) (laughs) Buy the books, all four books, if if not, just buy one for yourself or someone you love. And uh, once we have all that support come together, we'll be able to do more. And finally, regardless of political party affiliation, what's your hope that the reader will gain from the Queens of Resistance series? Well, I think one 
key reason we wrote these books is to inspire young women to get involved in politics, um, to see that these women, even though they seem like icons and their stories seem, you know, their, their career seems so out of touch, out of reach of the everyday individual to learn that they were moms, that they had children, that they had divorces, they were fired from jobs, all the things that people, everyday people go through, um, they experienced, yet they were able to rise to the occasion and become leaders in, in our uh, American society, not just leaders of women, but mm -hmm. leaders of a nation as a whole, that is very powerful. So we wanted them to know they can do it too. And to know that they must get involved in politics. You cannot, our, our system is not a system that um, acknowledges, recognizes, or registers uh, on looking you must get involved if you want to change the way things are. And there've been a lot of forces that try to discourage people from doing it. We wanna be a force that encourages people to take control of their power and use it. Kashan, what about you? Yeah, I agree exactly. I'm just nodding along to Brenda. I think that we do want to, you know, we do want to encourage people and help them understand in these books that they must get involved in politics. And I can, I can testify to someone who has been someone who's like, I don't want to, you know, be involved in politics. Politics is bad. Uh, it's just full of a bunch of crooks. But I think after you're reading this book and we do, we do have to focus on the change makers and the people doing good. And when you read these books, you will see the good that can be done with politics and you, you will see how, you can personally get involved in politics um, from wherever you're at in the world, how, whatever age you're at. Um, so our we included, um, our series is very inclusive in terms of background and diversity, but also age, because we wanted to show you can get involved from wherever you are, it's mm -hmm. not too late and do whatever you can um, and that'll be enough. Wow. The book series is Queens of Resistance and I've been in conversation with Krishan Trotman and Brenda Jones, co-author. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.